53, verses 8 to 13. which can be found on page 992 of your pew Bibles. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove their blamelessness. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we continue our mini-series in what is the church and what is a church office, we continue this Lord's Day to look at what in the world is a deacon and what do deacons do. And this topic reminded me, some years ago, as I was cutting my teeth in ministry, there was this understanding in broadly evangelical and in American evangelical circles that the greatest thing that a single church could do was to conform to what the first century church looked like. They thought that the early church, the earliest church, was a picture of what a true church should look like. If you remember uh, a very popular movement called the Emergent Church, this is what their desire was. But thankfully at the church I grew up in, I had great Christian leaders and pastors who knew both their Bible and were wise with their Bible. And they told me, although you desire to become a true church, we want you to think about two things. First, think about what it means to be faithfully committed as a church. As we looked just a few weeks ago, a true church was one church that was committed to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship of the saints, and to prayer into what we would call the ordinary means of grace, and that through those good and gracious things, God blesses his church. Then they said, look at something else. They said, look at the church at Colossae. Look at the church at Galatia and Thessalonica. Look at the Smyrna church and the church in Pergamum and Sardis. Look at the Corinth church. No pastor in their right mind would ever want those churches. They were terrible. They believed the wrong things. They did the wrong things. And so this idea of going back to this true church as being the best church is just a false idea. To be the best church, a good church, and the true church, it means following Christ by faith. Because we can just look at the history of the church. It was established in Acts 1 and 2 at Pentecost. And then as soon as chapter 6 in Acts, the church got issues. There was division among them. They didn't know what to do. And so why we can say the first century church helps us understand what a true church looks like, 
We are to, to desire to just be like that church. We are to desire to follow Christ by faith in all things. That's why our confession says our goal as a church of Jesus Christ is to strive to be as pure and without error as we possibly can. We can't do this by simply wanting to do better. We do this by following the word of God. What God has given his churches to practice the ordinary means of grace. The reading and the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. How are we a true church? We are faithful to God's word. And as a church, and as good a good Presbyterian church, that means we do that because we, by following the regulative principle. Students and children, if you're taking notes, write that down. The regulative principle, and ask your parents what it means later, because I'm sure they can all tell you. The regulative principle means that we only do that which is commanded. If it is not commanded in Scripture, we mu if it's not commanded, we cannot do it. It is not permitted. This is different than the normative principle, which says that which is not forbidden is permitted. I know that's clear, right? The regulative principle is we are only able to do what the scriptures command us to do or what we can deduce from good and necessary consequences. We cannot do something just because we want to and because scripture doesn't say you can't do that. I say all this as we come to the time to nominate elders and deacons. What we should do as a church is what I hope we have done so far the past two weeks is that we run to the word for a desire to be as close to God's good and true church as we possibly can. Our confession says that every church has error in it. We're sinners. That's what sinners do when they get together. They mess things up. As one of my principals said over in England, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. You'll just screw everything up. <laughs> but as our desire as a church to be a good and true church, we run to the scriptures. And as I said last week, in 1 Timothy 3, we see a portrait painting of what a church officer looks like. Last week, we looked at the office of elder. This week, we're going to look at the office of deacon. And this word deacon doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. Most of the time when it appears, it is transliterated, meaning they take the Greek word and just put it in English letters, and it sounds the exact same. This is different than what we saw last week when we looked at the terms episkopos and presbyteros, those terms are translated. They're given a meaning to them. Well, the word deacon is just a straight transliteration. The Greek word is diakonos, deacon, diakonos. It's just a straight verbatim transliteration. But sometimes in the New Testament, that word is translated. It is given meaning. And the word deacon means to serve. 
A deacon is one who serves. For instance, in Mark 10, 45, we see the word translated when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's my translation. For the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. If we just use a transliteration of the words that is there, that is what it says. The Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. The same is true for John 12, 26. If we were to transliterate the word deacon, it would read, If anyone deacons me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my deacons will be. If anyone deacons me, the Father will honor him. The New Testament doesn't use the word deacon very often. And so we need to grasp and understand when it does use that word, we need to pay attention. So what in the world is a deacon? Well, Paul tells us in this passage before us. He says deacons likewise, meaning he's not severing the complete opposite of what he said before, but in this same way, he's speaking of a different office. He says, a deacon likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first, Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When you see a deacon, this is what you must see. When we're nominating deacons, we are not nominating someone who might look like this. We are nominating someone who already looks like this. This is what we must be see. A deacon must be dignified. They must be honorable in all their conduct. As I said last week, the same applies this week. A deacon must look like Jesus. But not only should a deacon look like Jesus, they must also look to Jesus. Deacons should be people with admirable traits and character. This is what a deacon must be. They must be dignified. Second, Paul gives us a negative. What a deacon must not be, double-tongued. They must not say one thing while meaning another. Today we call that a hypocrite. People who say one thing And do another. People who say, do what I say, not what I do. Think of the situations deacons typically find themselves in. And we're going to get to what a deacon does in just a little bit. They are called to serve and to minister to the weak. 
They are called to the poor and downtrodden. They are called to care for the widows and the orphans. But while they are out doing this work, how easy would it be to be double-tongued? To say one thing and then do another. As they are about hearing information, sometimes when you hear information, it's really hard to curb that desire to want to tell somebody else so that person might like you. Did you hear about so-and-so? And then we put Christian garb around and say, well, we need to pray for them. Not all information needs to be passed along to others. Being double-tongued is being someone who likes to gossip or likes to flatter. Flattery is saying to someone's face that what you wouldn't say behind their backs. Gossip is saying behind someone's back that what you would not say to their face. Think of what James says in his epistle. Children, again, if you're taking notes, write down James 3, 5 through 12. That, that can be your Bible study for not, tonight. Read that together. See what James says on how something as small as a tongue can destroy a life. It can wreak havoc. But yet with such a small thing, we can proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of grace. A tongue can cut and pierce, but a tongue can also bring healing and comfort. From our tongues, we sing glorious praise to our God and our King. Do you remember how Paul called the Ephesian church to speak when we went through Ephesians? He said, speak the truth in love. He said, speak truth to your neighbor. Let no corruption, no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And notice, this is not just what the deacons are called to, this is what the church is called to. But what Paul is saying is those who serve and minister in the name of the Lord must not have a double tongue. They must comfort with their words. They must speak truth with their words. They must love with their words. A deacon must be able to control their mouths. A deacon must also be able to control their appetites. Paul gives us another negative. A deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Just as an elder is not to be a drunkard, deacons must be able to control their drinking. They must be able to control their appetites. Believing in the gospel of Jesus means that we walk in newness of life. Here again, we go back to the book of Ephesians. And if I haven't pointed out, Timothy is in Ephesus. So everything we find in Ephesians is also given to Timothy, who is serving the church in Ephesus. And do you remember what Paul said to the Ephesian church? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But do you remember what he contrasts 
that action with. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but what? We are to be filled by the Spirit. Deacons must not find fullness of anything or anyone but Jesus. As Matt Smethurst writes in his book on deacons, it is very possible that in the early church, diaconal ministry included bringing wine to congregants for medicinal reasons. And so a deacon was someone who could be trusted with the church's gift to the people and distribute it honestly and without res- uh, with great restraint. A deacon must be able to control their mouths and their appetites. A deacon must also not be greedy for dishonest gain. This is an identical qualification of an elder from Titus 1.7. Dishonest gain is like someone who treats money like a vacuum cleaner, tries to suck it all up for themselves, not leaving anything for anyone else. But if you take, dis- if you take everything for dishonest gain, you are living contrary to the gospel of Jesus, which gives rather than takes which brings life. The gospel calls for generosity, not selfishness. The gospel calls for open-handedness, not grasping as much as we can possibly acquire. How could a deacon be greedy if they are the ones who are charged to dispensing goods, money, and provisions to the poor? Dishonesty, dishonest gain is nothing but sheer greed. Greed is an outworking of a heart that covets. Paul continues in verse 9, a deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith. We typically think of mystery in two different ways. This past week I met with someone in my office and I said there are three mysteries of the Christian faith. And what I meant by mystery is something that we cannot fully know or fully understand. And if you've you've heard me say this before, the three mysteries of the Christian faith are the Trinity. We can never fully grasp how God can be three in one. The second is the Incarnation. We can never fully understand how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man exactly at the same time, always. The third mystery of the Christian faith is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How can God truly be sovereign over all things while at the same time all humans have responsibility and are responsible for their actions and their decisions? And so when I speak of mystery in this way, I speak of something that cannot be known. But that's not how Paul is using it here. Again, Paul is using it here as he uses it in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, 4, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, this mystery, as Paul uses it, is something that was hidden but has now been revealed. 
What Paul means in 1 Timothy 3 is that anyone who says that a deacon is only to work with their hands and not with their head doesn't understand what a deacon is called to. Deacons are called to use their head, their hearts, and their hands. Deacons are not called just to fix houses or yards or pipes. They need to be able to speak truth into the hearts and to the souls of those whom they serve. I would go as far as to say that a deacon is not truly deaconing until they are able to serve and speak the gospel into the lives of everyone they come in contact with. Deacons aren't just a fancy church name for handymen. They don't just need to know their way around farmer's hardware, even though I don't know my way around farmer's hardware. They must also know their way around the scriptures. How else can they truly pray for somebody? How else will they be able to speak blessing and give assurance to God's people? Notice what Paul hasn't listed as qualifications. He doesn't list how many tools a deacon is to own. He doesn't mention that a deacon should be good at managing a spreadsheet. He doesn't mention that they should be good at making financial plans. He doesn't mention that they have to be able to fix things. God is way more concerned with the character of a deacon than their resume. All of these qualifications deal with the heart Can they mend a broken and weary soul with the gospel of Jesus? Can they serve without asking anything in return? Can they love like Jesus? Are they eager to listen? Or are they eager to be heard? Are they flexible? Or are they always pushing for their own way? As I said last week, the one missing qualification of a deacon compared to an elder is the ability to teach. But Paul does not exempt a deacon from not knowing the word of God. They are to hold to the mystery of the faith. They are are called to feed the poor with food, but also to feed the poor with the bread of life. Deacons must know the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic faith. They must be able to testify to the person and the work of Jesus Christ who brings salvation to sinners, who comfort the low and the wretched. A deacon is only qualified to deacon if they are embraced and exemplify the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why our BCO requires for elders and deacons to affirm the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. This is why the BCO requires that all of our officers must adopt the confession of faith in the catechisms as containing the best system of doctrine taught in scriptures. This is why we ask all our officers to 
promise that if they ever change their view about the word of God, that they will take the initiative to speak to the elders about that change in a clear conscience. And just as we saw with elders, Paul says in verse 10, deacons must be tested. They must have a proven track record. Smethurst says, again, that the church can deploy deacons. If the, if the church deploys deacons not qualified and tested, they could impoverish the church, even destroy it. But if the church deploys deacons qualified and tested, they could incalculably strengthen and build up the church to the glory of Christ Jesus. Deacons must be tested. They must be proven. They must hold to the mystery of the faith. Now, if we were to jump to verse 12, where Paul says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well, this passage would read almost indistinguishable from verses 1 through 7. But it doesn't. Sandwiched between verses 10 and 12 is verse 11, where Paul says, wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. There are faithful Christians, both men and women, who disagree about what this passage means. For this word, for wife, can also be translated as women. And so, there's some difference in opinion in what Paul is actually saying. And as my seminary professor wrote when he addressed the four major interpretations of this passage— he said, Paul is either addressing women as a part of the general order of deacons, or two, he is addressing female deacons or deaconesses who correspond somehow to the male deacons, or three, Paul is addressing assistance to deacons like the praiseworthy widows in 1 Timothy 5 and the older women who, tra who train younger women in Titus 2, or four, Paul is addressing Oh, I lost my spot. Paul is addressing the wives of deacons. Paul is addressing wives of deacons and elders. It seems as though Paul isn't addressing women as a part of the general order of deacons because he seems to clarify and distinguish them between the deacons in verses 10 and 11. And it doesn't seem as though Paul is addressing female deaconesses here because the title deacon is given very intentionally in the other two verses. It seems as though Paul is either speaking of women in general or the wives of deacons and elders. I believe that this, that this is true for two reasons. One, because Paul, what Paul says in verse 12a and two, because what Paul says in verse 12b. In 12a, he says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. This is identical, identical to what he says in verse 2 of an elder. A deacon, like an elder, is to be a one-womaned man, committed faithfully, covenantally, to one woman for their entire lifetime. Second, Paul says in verse 12b, Deacons must manage their children and their household well. This means that a deacon must uphold his faith 
at home first and then the church. This is why Paul says to elders in verse 4 or verse 5, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I believe Paul in verse 11 is saying that not only are deacons and elders called to exemplify Christ, but so too are those within their homes, especially if they are married. Now you might say, Tyler, that is a really hard requirement. But let me ask you, is it really? Is it really that hard to hear the requirement of being dignified, not slandering, being sober-minded, and faithful in all things? Every requirement in verse 11 is what Paul says elsewhere that the church should look like. But what I want you to see is a very important, just as my seminary professor said, there's, these are the four interpretations of this verse. There is one thing that is equivocally clear. All four views agree that women should be involved in diaconal work. Paul's vision here is not to minimize the work of the church. Paul's vision here is to maximize the ministry of the church for the glory of Christ, not the individual's. He's saying ministry is not just for men. It can't be. Paul envisions women doing ministry and doing it well with dignity and with honor. Yes, God structures the church as he structures the home. And as God's word is our sole authority here, what it says is final. Not what we think, not what we wish, not what we experience. The only thing that matters is what God says and what he means. Now, there are, very, there are many who disagree with my conclusions and the PCA's conclusions. And to be a member at this church, you don't have to agree with this conclusion. That the office of deacon is only for men. But to be a member of this church, if you are a member of this church, you have vowed to submit yourself and to study and uphold the purity and the peace of Christ's church. We must be eager as brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we might disagree, to seek unity in the bond of peace. And isn't it interesting? In Acts 6, the passage that Blake read, this exact, is exactly what we see the deacons do. This is, Acts 6 is the historic chapter of seeing what deacons must do. The church has been founded, and they find a situation that erupts in the middle of this church. Widows are not being fed, and the apostles have a problem. And so what do the apostles do? They appoint deacons to the task. Not because it wasn't a serious issue. They appoint deacons because it was a serious issue. If you read in Acts 6, 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This is not a foregone conclusion in this passage. This only happens because the apostles called deacons, and deacons stepped in, for the glory of God to serve their local church. 
diaconal work isn't JV work. The deacon isn't a stepping stone office to become elders. Yes, some deacons become elders, but they become elders because they're called and they're gifted. It was a grievous issue. And they didn't give it to them. And notice, they didn't give it to them and then tell them how to solve the problem of the feeding of the widows. The deacons stepped in and they solved the problems themselves so that the ministry of the word could continue to spread. And look at how Luke describes these deacons. He gives three descriptions of them. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were full of wisdom. They were a, a good, they had good repute. No wonder deacons must have biblical wisdom to be able to serve the church. Because if you don't have these things, how can you truly serve Christ's church? They came and did what Jesus himself did. They were servants of the Lord. They came and they mended and they stepped into a situation that needed to be taken care of for the people of God that Jesus gave his life for. As the Old Testament prophets proclaimed of the one to come, do you remember what Isaiah called our Lord Jesus? The servant of the Lord. When a deacon steps into a situation and deacons as the Lord has called him to deacon, he will emulate the one he serves. For Jesus washed his disciples' feet as a servant. He served them even though he knew they were going to betray him. He served them despite their unworthiness. He cared for the hurting and for the poor and for the lowly. For those who serve deacon like Jesus, they meet practical needs. But as they do so, they reflect the love of the Savior who died for them and gave them all things. Elders and deacons have a different calling. They have different gifts. And far too often, the work of a deacon goes unnoticed. Christ Presbyterian Church, I encourage you to thank a deacon today for the selfless work that they do for this church. How they step in and serve when no one asks. How they selflessly give hours and time of every day of every week so that you can show up and not know anything that goes on behind the scenes. Deacons are called to something glorious. They are called to serve our Savior and his bride for their own good. Do you remember what Paul said to the church in Philippians or in Philippi? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus says, the greatest among us are those who serve. To be a deacon means our Savior has called and chosen you for this season of life, for you to serve his church that he bought and paid for with his own blood. And so at its most basic meaning, we are all called to be deacons. Everyone has been called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has died for us, who atoned for your sin, who has taken your life of shame, kicked out of the garden, so that you could be brought back in, recreated in the image of Christ. And he promises you life everlasting, even when you didn't deserve it. He has called you to be kingdom workers, to be kingdom builders, to be set apart in the kingdom of priests to follow Jesus. And he has called deacons to a holy and a noble task, to serve his church. If you do not agree with what I said today, I'm fine with that. I would love to hear your heart. I would love to hear why, not so that I can try to convince you, but so that I can hear of your desire to serve Jesus. Christ has gifted both men and women. We are called to work hand in hand for the glory of God and the good of his people. But he has called deacons to a special task. If you are a deacon, I ask you, does this paragraph describe you? If you are going to nominate a deacon, does this paragraph describe that person? And ultimately, you must ask yourselves, as a servant of Christ, does this describe you? What is a deacon? A deacon is one who serves, someone who looks like Jesus, not because they have everything put together, but because they know that everything they are is because of what Jesus has provided for them through his cross, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you build your church Father, bless this church through godly men who serve in the office of elder and deacon and bless this church through the selfless acts of the men and women of this congregation who serve you faithfully. Lord, bind us together in unity, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ and for the good of his people. 
We ask this in his name. Amen.